Hi, this is Ben Lola, back to the Bible Canada. Today we continue in Romans chapter 2 with our series entitled, The Heart of the Gospel. Yesterday, Dr. Neufeld discussed what is known as Judgment Day, characteristics of those who go to heaven, and a brief consideration of how Paul describes hell. Today, he's going to share with us how we can ensure success on Judgment Day. So let's quickly open our Bibles and join Dr. Neufeld right now. Most of us have seen the statue of the woman who is meant to symbolically portray justice. She has a sword in her hand and she's blindfolded. The idea behind the statue is the ideal of justice. Lady Justice is blind, meaning she cannot see who's in front of her and therefore she's never tempted to be partial towards anyone. She renders judgment without regard to a person's reputation, their standing in life, how popular they are, how much money or power they might have. None of that affects her judgment. Of course, that's the ideal, but we know that it's not always that way in real life. In our system of criminal justice, those with more money can sometimes hire better lawyers, and those who have nothing have a lawyer assigned to them from the courts who might have a large caseload and little time to handle your present situation. In the criminal justice system, at least to some extent, you get what you're able to pay for. But that's not the ideal. The ideal is blind justice. Well, what's God's standard on Judgment Day? When we last left our study in the book of Romans, we ended with Romans 2 verse 11, which says, For God shows no partiality. That means that God will attain to the ideal of justice. In the final day, God will show no favoritism. 2,000 years before Paul wrote those words, Abraham said the very same things. He said, Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the answer, of course, is yes, he will. So how will God judge the world? What's fair? From our ongoing study in Romans, we've come to Romans chapter 2, 12 to 16. Let's read them now. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearer of the law who is righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written in their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Now let's understand the context of what we just read. Paul is speaking to the Jewish-Gentile problem. Jews, it would seem, had a tremendous advantage on Judgment Day. Speaking to brand-new Gentile converts, Paul will say in Ephesians 2, Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Jews, by contrast, had the history of Abraham. They were taught the law of God from birth. In fact, many memorized it. They were God's chosen people. And a lot of Gentiles had never heard of the covenant and the promise. So given that Jews knew exactly what God wanted and Gentiles were to a large portion ignorant, we might say Jews not only had a huge advantage, but that God himself is hardly partial in judgment. See, in our day, the question is much the same. What will happen to those who have never heard about Christ? Christ. 
Uh, Don't Christians today have a distinct advantage over both the Jews and the Gentiles of Paul's day in that we not only know the law and the gospel of Jesus, but we have Bibles on our shelves. We listen to sermons all our lives. We're constantly called upon to reflect on what God wants. So is God fair? Well, yes, he is. But we say, how so? Well, we know that God has already made his standards clear. Just in order to understand this passage, I want you to look at this very carefully. Four times, Paul uses the word for. The first is found in verse 11, which summarizes the first half of chapter 2. For God shows no partiality. Now, in our passage, verses 12 to 16, we find that Paul uses the word for three more times. It's in verse 12, in verse 13, then in verse 14. He's, in fact, giving us three reasons why we can know for certain that God is impartial in his judgment. Let's look at the first reason. Verse 12 says this, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Now, just so that you get this, I want you to read verse 12 again, and let us take out the qualifying phrases. It could read this way, For all who have sinned will perish. We can put it another way. All who sin will fail or be condemned on judgment day. This standard of judgment needs to be said clearly because there is some misunderstanding here. Every once in a while, I'll hear someone say that the only sin God will ever judge a non-Christian for is his or her failure to receive Jesus as his or her personal Savior. But what then do we make of those who have never heard? And secondly, that's not what this passage says. God will judge everyone according to their sins. That means he will take into account every single action every human being has done and how we have violated his will. This, by the way, counters all the myths about Judgment Day. One myth says that God holds a pair of scales in his hand to see if our good deeds outweigh our bad deeds. But that's not justice. No one going to court for the crime, for instance, of theft is found to be innocent because their good deeds outweigh their bad deeds. That would take the blindfolds off Lady Justice. Another myth states that God grades on the curve. That is, if you're average or better than average, you're going to be fine. Again, no court would ever consider that. A third myth is that all that God wants is that we do our best. Can you imagine someone being charged with theft, for example, being asked if they've tried to do their best? The judgment of God is already plain. He will judge our sins on judgment day. That's what the prophet Ezekiel says, the soul who sins shall die. Now let's take it a step further. Ignorance of God's standard is no excuse. Those, Paul says, who have no knowledge of the law will also be judged for their sins, but they will be judged, Paul says, without the law. That is, God will make no reference to the written law when he judges them. And we're going to come back to that. Now, thirdly, familiarity with God's standards makes matters worse. And here we come to whether the Jew has an advantage over the Gentile on Judgment Day. And the answer is no, because sinning under the law means that the law will be used as evidence against that person. And the application for us is clear. God will judge every single person according to the light that they have. And just so that we understand, the individual who has a Bible on his shelf— or, or as in my case, I have numerous Bibles. In fact, I have at least eight different translations into English. I have three different translations into German. I have two Greek New Testaments. I have one Hebrew Old Testament. I have a number of language helps along with numerous commentaries. And all those could count against me on Judgment Day. 
And you will also be held accountable for all the sermons you've heard, all the teaching of the Bible that you hold in your hand. One could almost imagine that Paul is teaching that the weight of judgment will fall more severely on the one who knew better and did nothing. In fact, if you listen to what Jesus said, I'm quoting here from Luke 12, 47 to 48, he says, And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. So then how specifically will God do that? Remember, I said that there are three uses of the word for in this passage. Verse 12 had the first one. Now let's look at the second one. Verse 13 reads, For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Now, we know that this is a declaration of how God will judge those who know his word. At first glance, this verse seems fairly simple. You just can't listen to the word. You have to do what it says. Simple enough. But look closely at verse 13. At first glance, the verse seems to say that if you do the law perfectly, you're going to be justified, as if Paul could hold out the possibility that you can earn your way into heaven. And what we have, uh, have here has been called a dialectical tension. If you pull too hard in one direction, you have an error. And the same is true if you pull too hard in the other direction. For example, think of those people who argue that you have to be a doer and not a hearer only. Well, that's true. But if you pull too hard in that direction, you get people like some people in the cults who think that they can earn their way into heaven. And that's to deny what's said by the Bible. On the other hand, if you pull too hard in the other direction that you can't get to heaven by works, well, that's true. But you get some people who pay no attention to anything in Scripture all their lives. Technically, that's been called antinomianism or also been called lawlessness. The Bible makes it plain. I'm reading from 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral or the idolaters or adulterers or men who practice homosexuality or thieves or the greedy or drunkards nor revilers nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. See, listen, God demands obedience. And so we have this tension happening. Yeah, we've got to be hearers of the word, but on the same sense, we also know that we're only saved by grace. We're going to come back to all that after the break. It's important to remember that we will indeed be held accountable for our sins on Judgment Day. And there's great conviction in knowing that we'll be held accountable to all that we hear, for what we read and for what we know. So we're reminded that what we do does matter. How we live our lives matters, and all of it will reflect on what Judgment Day will mean for each of us. After the break, Dr. Neufeld will talk on how God judges those who don't know His Word. Thanks for joining us today. And can I ask you, have you signed up for your free Bible Matters publication? If you're enjoying listening to the Bible teaching of Dr. John Neufeld and would like to be engaged with even more, consider signing up today. Bible Matters is filled with biblically-based articles and delivered to your doorstep six times a year. To subscribe, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us online at backtothebible.ca. Now let's join Dr. Neufeld for part two of today's program. Father, I am not unaware that these are difficult words. They may fill our hearts with heaviness. 
we may not know where to turn, but Father, I pray that in the midst of these words about sin and judgment, we might find hope, that we might still find in you the, the reason for our life and the reason why we can look forward to a great future. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. You know, the ultimate folly is to listen to the word and not act. James says it's like a person who looks at his face in the mirror and then forgets what he looks like. In other words, the whole of Scripture is a mirror. It gives insight into who we are. Some people look and nothing registers. And the Bible says that attitude is the attitude of the person who hears and doesn't act. It's the attitude of the person who will face the ruin of his or her entire life. Some people will get to heaven thanking God for every word they've ever heard. For the Word of God has been life to them. And some people will go to hell and rue the day they ever heard one word from God, for it will register against them on judgment day. Please, please don't take these words lightly. So how will God judge those who know his word? Well, in one sense, he will judge by your obedience to the word. In other words, you know, our faith does not teach us that we have an optional set of commands. You know, if the New Testament teaches that we're to keep the marriage bed pure, it actually means what it says. If the law says you shall not steal or commit adultery or murder, or if it warns you against worshiping other gods, please don't treat that lightly. God will judge us by whether our obedience leads us to rely on his grace or not. You shouldn't get the idea that law-keeping or even obedience earns you a place in heaven. It doesn't. But some people think it does. Instead, we should read the law, read the requirements, get a picture of ourselves, and then come to the Lord and cry out for grace saying, Oh, Lord, save me. Give me the grace that I need to live as you want me to live. That's what the law actually requires. The tragedy in Paul's day is that some of the Jews failed to see the law's purpose. That is, they should, through the law, have looked for grace and mercy. You know, auditing the Christian faith results in an F. Do you know that? Some people have been auditing the faith. Have you ever audited a class in college or university? Auditors show up, they get what they want out of the class, and that's it. They don't do their assignments, they're not tested on whether they've mastered the material, and some, it's so sad to say, are auditing the faith. I mean, you may show up for the lectures, but you don't do the assignments. You've been an auditor of the Christian faith. You have never enrolled in Jesus' course for abundant living. You've just listened in, and that's the tragedy. Now, here's the next question. Paul now turns to the Gentiles. How will God judge those who are ignorant of his word? We come now to the last use of the word for. Remember, Paul has been trying to show us that God will not show favoritism on Judgment Day. So what happens to the unbelieving Gentile? Or in our context today, what happens to the person who's never heard? Are they at a disadvantage on Judgment Day? Well, again, let's read verses 14 and 15. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Now, I believe the book of Romans teaches four reasons why every single person, regardless of their knowledge base, will be judged fairly by God, and in the fair judgment of God, all will fail. Here's reason number one. God will judge by the knowledge of him in creation. That's what chapter one taught us. There's something every human being knows about God. Here's the second thing. God will judge by the eternal truth written in every heart. Verse 15 teaches that there is an eternal law, 
of God written in our hearts, and when we obey it, we are acting according to nature, verse 14, and when we disobey it, we turn our back on our natural inclination in our souls. Theologians call this the doctrine of common grace, meaning that no matter who you are or how you've been raised or what culture you've come from or what your parents believed, you have an internal barometer that teaches you what is right or wrong. Eternity is written in the heart of every single man or woman. Of course, as time goes by, we sear our conscience with a hot iron, we ignore it, we replace it with other things, but we are accountable to that which we intuitively knew. That's why some cultures that know nothing about the Bible or about Jesus are shocked by our culture. I've been in cultures where people are shocked to hear that in North America, sexual relations among people who are unmarried is common. They're shocked. Why? Because there is a law in their heart. They just know that it's wrong to steal or to kill. I read uh, some time ago that the majority of all soldiers who go to war do not, in fact, take human life. And why? Because there is a natural repugnance in the human heart to kill. God has made it so. See, lots of people who don't know Christ don't mistreat their spouse. Why? Because there's a law in their heart. So God will judge the person who is ignorant of his word by creation and by an eternal law that he has written in our hearts. He will judge by the law of conscience. Conscience is an interesting thing. It's about the past tense, not the future. Conscience looks back at what we've done and either pats us on the back or it condemns us. And by the way, do you know why lie detectors work? They work because there are bodily responses to lying. The interior law tells us that lying is wrong, and the conscience is the bodily response to having violated an internal moral command. Now, it is true that conscience is an unreliable guide, and as we've seen, we can manipulate it. Some people know how to beat a lie detector. But how do we do that? Well, think of the first time a person does something that's contrary to God's law. Let's say he steals or she lies, and afterward, his or her conscience bothers them. It's a radar system that lights up that says, that was wrong. But let's say the person doesn't listen. Next time, she does it again, and her conscience says that was wrong, but she still doesn't listen. Eventually, the voice of conscience grows quiet. You know that virtually all serial killers felt guilt at the beginning, but after a while, the guilt simply quieted down. Repeated, habitual violations of conscience actually destroy the conscience. And so those who know the law will be judged by the conflict that rages in every mind. Now, verse 15 tells of conflicting thoughts, sometimes accusing and sometimes excusing. Is this right? Is this moral? How can I excuse this? Every once in a while, I'll hear someone say something that sounds this way. They'll say, if I had to do it all over again, I wouldn't change a thing. (laughs) I love the bravado there. Uh, But they're lying. They're covering up. You're convincing yourself you aren't guilty when deep down inside you know that you violated a moral universe. So we've been talking about how to succeed on Judgment Day. This is so very important. It's true that we can't get into heaven by keeping God's laws, and yet we're condemned if we have broken them. So where does that leave us? Every time I've taught on Romans, I'll hear someone complaining, you know, there's so much condemnation in Romans, so much talk about sin. I mean, it just goes on and on. It's true, and it's good insight to point it out. 
Romans 2.16 says that on the great day, God will judge the secrets of our hearts. No one gets a pass. Everyone is condemned. You know why this is the stuff that needs to be said over and over again so regularly until we get it? Because if we don't get it, the minute we stop hearing that we're going to suppose again that everything's okay, and then we're going to suppose that we really don't need a Savior. So here's my bit of counsel. Please, don't try to hide your sin. Please, don't try to cover them up. Please get honest and say, on my own, I have no hope on Judgment Day. Unless someone comes and saves me from what is to come, I am condemned. That's the place to start. And until we get that in our hearts, we will never understand why Christ came and died on the cross for our sins. Dr. Neufeld, I became intrigued when you started talking about conscience and how people deal with conscience and conscience being our guide, people like to say, those types of things. But we recognize maybe that there is a little bit of a difference between what some people think is wrong and what some people think is right. But you've mentioned to me before that C.S. Lewis had a perspective of conscience and right and wrong that maybe is counter to that. Yes, uh, Lewis pointed out that there is a remarkable similarity uh, of uh, standards of right and wrong that transcend cultures and time periods. Uh, for instance, every culture thinks it's wrong to just wantonly kill someone. Uh, every culture thinks that it's wrong, at least most of them do, to lie. And a lot of the things that we consider as basic are in fact a part of people's basic psyche. So I know that there are differences of right and wrong between cultures, but there is a similarity as well. Um, I think both of them are true at the same time. And given that we live in a fallen world, Obviously, there are wrong understandings of right and wrong, but given that God has placed eternity in our hearts, there's still a, a kind of a, a fading glow that's there in each one of our lives. So I guess the question is, should we trust our conscience? Well, I don't think we can. Uh, however, I do think that in some places, our conscience really does alert us that something's wrong. Problem that we have is that as time goes by, we've so violated all of our consciences that we pretty well wreck it by the time we get to be old and decrepit, I think. Well, thanks, John, for your words today. They've, uh, they've blessed us and challenged us. And uh, tomorrow we're going to continue in this series talking about what makes faith genuine. So we look forward to that and the hope that comes from knowing we can live with a genuine faith. Thanks so much, and we hope you'll join us again tomorrow on Back to the Bible Canada. Today's teaching gives us much to consider and potentially much to act on. If we have sin in our lives that we need to deal with, we have the opportunity even right now to pass it over to Jesus. That's why he came, and that's why he came to the cross. Tomorrow, Dr. Neufeld will be sharing with us on what makes faith genuine. Don't forget to join us as we continue our study in the book of Romans, the heart of the gospel on Back to the Bible Canada. You've probably wondered what it would be like to experience the Holy Land, walk where Jesus walked, or see the historic places where the events recorded in the Bible actually took place. Well, I'd like to invite you to join us for an experience of a lifetime this fall from October 30th to November 9th. Join Dr. Neufeld, Phil Calloway, and special musical guest The Weebs as we head for an Israel experience. 
and don't miss out on this great opportunity. To find out more about this trip or how you can register, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit our website at backtothebible.ca. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day.